0: Thanks, Steve. Well, yep, I got back, uh, Tony and I, Tony's back there doing the camera. He and I were in Haiti together all week. Thank you for all of your prayers. It was uh, blazing hot. It was uh, 98 degrees outside, inside the church with a metal roof. I don't know what it was. But I discovered that, uh, some of you may have read my, my uh, uh, social media post that I discovered I actually do have an idol. It's a fan, and so I told the students that, and because they, that's something they really push away from. I said, no, I like idolatry. And I went over and hugged the fan. So, man, it was hot. And uh, they live in that all the time. Thank you for praying. It was a very, very wonderful time. Uh, I hope it was an edifying time for them. They said it was. They asked me to pass on to you their gratitude and their love. They're very aware of the dangers. They live there all the time. They're very aware of the um, State Department asking Americans not to come, and we came anyway. And so at every, I spoke for three different days, and they had tears every day. And it was three different groups. It wasn't the same group every time. So we spoke the first day with... Uh, Leadership leaders around the area. We had about three hundred. Then the second day was with senior pastors. It was a little bit more of an education time. And then the third day was with students from the local seminary. And uh so three different groups and they had people come up to us with tears and saying, Thank you for risking your life to come here. I didn't actually ever feel unsafe. I don't know if Tony did, but no, you didn't either. Yeah. I mean we fly there, land at the airport, they meet us inside the airport. Put us in the car, drive us 10 miles to the compound, and there we were. So the last night, we went out, several of us went out to dinner over on the ocean. Tony and I took them out, and uh, we didn't have the room in the truck, so some, some rode in the back. So I said, I'll ride in the back. No, no. And I go, why not? So they put their arm next to mine, and it said, dark light. <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait, don't I blend in? <laughs> we didn't blend in. But it was a very, Uh, very profitable time so thank you for praying for those of you that knew and thank you for uh, just your friendship and support and uh, Steve said that's right I leave this Friday for India and then uh, from India I fly to Cambodia so I'll be gone the next two weeks teaching I don't know how many conferences now I've kind of lost track but a bunch over the next two weeks so I would continue to appreciate your continued prayers for that if, you, uh, if you've not been inside there, you'll notice a table with food slowly being added. For those of you that are visitors, this is our last outdoor service. And um, if you were here a little bit, how cool it was, it's getting colder every day now. In fact, it was 100 degrees. They use Fahrenheit there. And I, I told uh, Bob, Pastor Bob, who's my translator, I said, tell them it's 40 degrees. And some of them, they understand enough English. He started laughing. And he said, excuse me? And I said, right now, it, where I live, it's 40 degrees. And he said, 40, And I said, yes. They were aghast. <laughs> They've never seen temperature that cold. So um, I'm going right back into the furnace in India. That's a close, it's in the 90s, upper 90s, and high humidity, so you could pray for that. I hope we have air conditioning. We'll find out. Um, but in any event, this is a period of time over, over a span of four weeks where I get a chance to travel and teach around the world. um, This is our last outdoor service. Next Sunday, we'll be indoors, back to our normal time, two services, 8.30 and 10, and we celebrate the end of summer with a potluck. So if you're a visitor, you're welcome to come. Uh, There's always plenty of food, and if we start to run out, we just make sure that our elders don't eat, okay? (laughs) So no, it's a good time afterwards. All right, we are doing a, finishing a series this summer on the parables, And I called it the messiness of the kingdom. I did that deliberately because so much of the time when we use the word kingdom, uh, for many Christians, what that means, which is appropriate, by the way, is talking about the future. It's talking about what happens in glory um, and how perfect it is. And that's true. The problem is we have to live in the world today. That's the problem. And so all of the parables, they do have a glimpse into the future, but all the parables are written about here, now, and what it looks like. And if you've been around all summer, uh, we're not going to disappoint today. Every parable turned culture on its head, every one. When Jesus started to speak, he took what was what was a cultural value and inverted it and surprised everybody it's going to happen again today. That's the way it was because he wanted them to understand The way they were living life was not appropriate. When I was, uh, some of you may have read my social media posts, the third day when I was working with the students, they had about 75 students from the seminary there. And so I asked them um, halfway through, uh, just kind of detected this, I'd felt it all week. If they, I said, do you really actually believe that God, uh, I mean, that you can be a force for good? here in Haiti. Do you actually believe that that the Lord wants to use you? Now these are the young ones. And you know what they did? All of them. They're hopeless. They really are. The disease is rampant. When we got shut down during COVID, they lost it. They lost everything. Diseases through the roof. People die every week now from disease because no more medical teams from America they have trouble getting medical supplies you know that was really hard for them to see us give up on them that's what it felt like poverty destitution greed corruption evil a lot of evil just a lot of it and that's why the state department asks Americans to stay away and um and so what was their answer? Do you feel like you can make a difference? No. It changed the direction of my, uh, my talk with them, my time. I began to shift towards encouragement because uh, God left us here for a reason. We live in a messy world. Don't be fooled by what you see here. Don't be fooled. I wish I could tell you what I see here with the conversations, but much, much of it is confidential. The brokenness here is very authentic, very real, and very destructive. Uh, don't be fooled. With what you see. This is a nice looking place, but it's just as broken as every place I've been to. It's just that in Haiti, it's on the the surface, everybody can see it. And so these parables are designed to help us understand the world that we live in, not what we see, but what's actually happening. And it requires theological lenses, it requires spiritual lenses to understand the brokenness of the world. So the way I've defined it, I've used two different ways of explaining it all summer. One I got from Edith Schaefer back in the mid-70s. She said that uh, the church is like a tapestry. On the front side of the tapestry, it's very beautiful. On the back side, it's real ugly. You have yarn and stuff hanging out. It's real messy. That's where we live. What God sees is what's on the other side with the church. And the other one, the other example I've been using or picture is that we live in a natural world It's broken, it's fallen, um, it's destructive in every way you can imagine. And yet Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, we are part of the new creation. We're in a world that's over here. In fact, in Ephesians 2, he said, we've already been raised and are seated with Christ at the right hand. We have to go through physical resurrection, but spiritual resurrection has already occurred. So we live in this world and we live in this world. We live in two worlds at the same time. And so we are to learn to think to what it's like to live in this world. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. And the verse before that, he says, because of the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. There's no more scarlet letters. Okay? The question is simple. Do you live in this world or not? Every Christian lives in this world, but yet we have to exist in this world. And this world is deceitful. It's very deceived. That's the very definition of Satan's name is a deceiver. And so the parables help us bridge that gap between these two worlds and to really see how messy the kingdom is right now in this world. One day, it'll all be good. It's interesting. The, uh, I said this statement many times. I said it in Haiti, and they all about fell out of their chairs because their hope is, is placed differently than it should be. The Bible never says you die and go to heaven. You realize that? That's a theological construct. Heaven is always coming to us in the scriptures, always. What did the the angels say when Jesus ascended? They all looked up and they said, why are you looking up? He's coming back. What did he say? I'm coming back for you, right? In Revelation, at the end of the story, the new Jerusalem is coming down. And so it's always pictured heaven is God's domain. Earth is our domain. This is our home right here. Okay, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the what? The earth, not heaven, okay? Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was promised the earth. Not, not with all the corruption and greed, all the systems. That's all going to be dealt with one day. But this is our home. This is what we we're created for. This is what we're made for. And so I travel all over the world and I see the beauty of creation everywhere I go. You have to look through the destruction and the pollution and the, the way different countries have marred, but it's still there. You know, in Nepal, they have mountains like this. In fact, they have mountains a lot taller than this. And, uh, and you, if you look through the pollution, you could see it. The last time I went to Nepal a couple of years ago, uh, it's the first time that uh, the pollution wasn't very bad. I have pictures taking, taking a picture across the street, a one-and-a-half lane, not two lanes, one-and-a-half lane road, and the house across the street is just an outline. The pollution is so thick. So I was talking to him. I said, why, why is it all of a sudden the pollution not so bad? And they said, well, they put in place trash receptacles. They made it against the law to burn their trash, and they're driving around issuing tickets, okay? And they, uh, they, they just said, we want to stop all this. Okay, now... You think, well, that's a good idea. Here's the theological side of it. It was the first time most of my students had ever seen stars. Now think about that. All of a sudden, the story of Abraham looking into the stars was a different story. I never even thought about that until we went outside at nighttime, and they were, they were just like this. They had never seen it because of the pollution is so bad. So these parables are there. Everyone, we don't, we're not going to take time to go through all of them. That'd be a year and a half by itself. But we've looked at about 10 or 12. We're going to look at another one today. It's in Luke. And you may have caught on to the fact that I've been going back and forth between Matthew and Luke because that's where a good portion of them are. And so when you think about cultural values, what defines culture? That's in this world. But what defines culture over here is something very different which is why I asked the Haitian students, okay, you see this clearly, but can you believe you can make a difference and move it over here? And they said, we don't even know how to do that. We don't even know what it looks like. That's why I raised the question, how did 12 men bring the Roman Empire to its knees in four, 400 years? God's not in a hurry, I get it. It may be beyond our lifetime, but the seeds that we're planting now are going to bear fruit long after we're gone. How did they do that? If you were to go tackle the Roman Empire, where would you start? You'd probably start with the military and the, and the leadership. That's not where Jesus started. He started at the bottom. He went after the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. He went after the hurting, the widows, the orphans, those that had no rights. That's where he went to. And as it spread along the foundation of the empire, eventually it collapsed on its own because they no longer worship Caesar, they now worship God. And that's always the way it happens if you are a student of world history. When Christianity spreads, that's what happens. I uh, <clears throat> Some of you have heard this story. Not all of you have. I was down at uh, Pug Ryan's uh, probably seven, eight years ago. And um, during the ski season, I was talking to a young couple. And I said, well, come over here. The place was packed because the roads were closed after the ski day. Come over here. I'll, I'll buy us some appetizers we can eat. So we're eating. I said, what do you do? And uh, she said, I'm in a master's program in, at, uh, down in Denver. I said, oh, really? What are you studying? And she said, I'm studying international relations. I'm getting ready to start my master's thesis. And I said, oh, she doesn't know anything about me. And I said, okay, tell me what you're going to write on. I'm really curious. And she said, I'm going to write on how uh, collective consciousness is the force that makes the world a better place. That's a Buddhist concept, okay? That there's, that there's this consciousness above the physical world that uh, makes it a better place. And I go, really? You believe that? And she goes, of course I do. I said, prove it. What do you mean? I said, okay, I have two bachelors, two masters, and a PhD. I'm on your thesis committee. And she said, you do? And I go, yeah, I do, really. And I said, so prove it. I can't prove that. I said, I'd never accept your thesis then. You have to be able to at least argue it. How are you going to argue it? She goes, I have no idea. (laughs) And I said, okay, I have an assignment for you. Go to the United Nations website, and the page where they grade... Uh, nations on human rights. They pass or fail and analyze those that pass and those that fail. If your thesis is true, you should be able to see it. So they went on and left and I never saw them again until about five or six weeks later. She showed up in a bar. I was sitting there and she found me. And uh, (laughs) she said, do you remember me? And I said, I do remember you. She goes, I've been driving up every weekend looking for you. I was hoping to find you. (laughs) And she goes, I did what you told me to do. And I said, what'd you find out? All the Christians that pass, I mean, all the nations that pass have uh, significant Christian influence, and all the nations that fail have zero or or not measurable, including all the Buddhist countries. Oh, what'd you learn? She said, it's a myth. Good for you. You figured it out. Now what am I going to write (laughs) on? I said, I'm no longer on your thesis. Sorry, your thesis committee. (laughs) I have my hands full at Denver Seminary. So uh, she, she saw the truth by doing the research, by doing the analytics. Where Christianity is not present is a horrible place. The values that govern culture are horrible. Where Christianity is in force, the values that govern culture are phenomenal. Not that we live according to them all the time. I'm not saying that. Nobody's perfect. But there is a massive difference. So when I started teaching overseas, I almost always go to the countries with very little Christian influence. Very little. And these parables unpack all of that messiness. So today there's a parable in Luke 16 There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Verse 19. And his gate was laid at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. How many of you have heard this story? Let me see. How many of you have not heard it? Anybody out there? So a couple of you. All right. It's a well-known parable. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us is a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot go. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So he answered, well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not Also, come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Think about what he just said. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. New Testament comes 30 years after this. Their Bible was that. Moses and the prophets. No, Father Abraham, this rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, "If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead." Okay, it's a well-known parable. Most people think of it in terms of what happens in eternity, and I think that's the wrong orientation because we're still in this world here, and we transported here. But he's trying to he's trying to show them something. You may remember all the way back in chapter fifteen, he's talking to tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are sitting on the side waiting just to test him and to jeer at him a little bit. So he's going to answer a question there. He's going to discuss a topic that they're very familiar with. You see, the the prevailing Jewish thought during this time was that the rich were blessed by God and the poor were not. Sorry if you're poor. You haven't been blessed by God. That prevailing thought exists in every country I go to. It takes various forms. So when I'm in a Hindu or Buddhist country, it's karma. Where you are today because of what you did in the last life, the last reincarnation. Sorry. You should have suffered more in the last reincarnation. And so I've said many times that in, in Hindu countries, Hinduism has a caste system, and if you're down at the bottom, it's because of the last reincarnation. The best thing this person can do is spit on this person so they'll suffer so in the next reincarnation they will move up. So Hinduism produces the most discriminating, mean, awful, religion on the planet when you go live in it don't believe what you hear in america it's not true okay these people down here they know that they struggled they didn't do well in the last reincarnation so they don't try to help themselves at all right i have pictures of the united nations coming in and putting in freshwater wells five six years later the tags are still on it they won't use it the wells there and you have a picture of them dipping water of a pond covered in scum Because if they try to better themselves, they're going to stay down in the next reincarnation. Well, there's not much different here. You're blessed by God if you're rich, and if you're poor, well, it's too bad. You're just not a good person. That was the thought. And so Jesus is turning this inside out or upside down. He's inverting it, which all of his parables and the Beatitudes and all of his teachings do that. You see, the rich man has enough food to take care of the poor man. Lazarus is right at his gate. Jesus drew this analogy on purpose. He's right at the gate of the rich man who has all the resources in the world to take care of the poor man. And he doesn't do it. He's self-centered. The poor man's covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He's okay if he could just take the crumbs. You know? People ask me if I feel guilty when I go overseas and I see this incredible poverty back in the back countries of these nations you know i don't feel guilty but i am driven i'm compelled to give more to give more to give more you know i know a lot of people that have traveled these countries and uh they're fun to travel when you're in five-star hotels but when you get away from the hotel into the back country and you see what life is really like when i get to cambodia in two weeks uh these people, they live in slums. It's a phenomenal thing to me that these Christians, there's about, I'm going to be speaking to 140, I think, that most of them have never been, had any education. Many of them don't even have never read the Bible, and yet they naturally went out and started serving these poor people. So I have pictures where there's a, 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 a just board there with a piece of board with a bed on it and a metal shack. That's their house. They all sit on the bed. They eat on the bed. They sleep on the bed because it's underwater. And they have to walk through sewage to get to this bed. All right? It's incredible. And the, the Buddhist leadership won't help them. Why? Because you deserve it. Because of karma. You see how terrible these things are? And so here you have a rich man, and you've got a poor man right at his, the gate to his house, and he won't even give him the crumbs. So the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, some of your older translations say. That's a picture of what happens to the Christian when they die. We are escorted into the Lord's presence. That's what happened with Stephen when he died. We go all the way back to Elijah, and the angels showed up and carried him. That's what happens to you when you die. You've got nothing to worry about if you're a believer in Jesus. When you close your eyes, you open them, you're in a different place. So then he carried him. And uh, to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and he was just simply buried. There's no language here about anybody showing up to help him to be carried. So he's in torment. So what does he say? He says, Father Abraham, I learned my lesson. Please forgive me. No, that's not what he says. Father Abraham, he says, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to me his thinking didn't change after he died. Lazarus is still the poor slave. Right? This is a wonderful picture of the values that we have that carry with us into eternity. Have Lazarus come serve me. You expect the difference. Yeah, people don't change. He says at the very end, he said, we could, we could raise somebody from the dead. And they still didn't change. And Jesus' life is a picture of that. He did miracles all over the place. And there's a whole bunch of people, including the Pharisees that never changed their mind. Even when they saw the miracles, any, if anything, they tried to kill him. They got jealous. It didn't change their heart. So what are the values that you live with? What are the values that define you? You know, my job as senior pastor is is actually pretty simple. It's complex to live it out. But according to our constitution, my job is to guide this church toward the kingdom values that the elders want us to be defined by. I've asked the question so many times, if your church were to close, and that includes our church, would the people across the street, would they be glad? Would they be sad? Would they even notice? There's only one good answer to that. What are the values that define your life? I can't answer that question. I don't know. I only know my own. What are the values? So, but he doesn't stop there. So then Abraham says, no, uh, you can't. You know, I'm not going to help you. He said, well then, send Lazarus to my family. He still hasn't changed. Send Lazarus, the poor beggar, to my family of rich people. You see it? And he says, no, no, they're not going to change. If they didn't change when they saw the miracles, he says that in one place, if they didn't change when they listened to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to change. I asked uh, two or three weeks ago, how many of you are pretenders? This flows through this whole chapter. How many of you are pretenders, pretending to be Christians? We're going to find out one day. Might as well own up to it. (laughs) All right. Where are your values? Each of the parables gives us a different glimpse into the soul of what actually defines us. We talked about faithfulness and belief. That's so when I said, how many of you, how many of you really are pretenders to Christianity? You show up because it feels good. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, which we read, on that day, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? And he says, away from me. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Oh, you pretended really well. Everybody around you believed it. But I know the truth. You didn't. These are hard sayings. There's no question about it. And so when we get to the end of this, this is a story of it's overturning a cultural value of don't be fooled. The rich, does not mean you've been blessed by God, the wealthy. That's not what that means. What it means is you've been given an opportunity. That's what it means to do something with it. And all throughout the Bible, we learn this lesson that God has blessed us in whatever way, finances, health, whatever you want to fill in that blank. God has blessed us to be a blessing to those around us. That's why. That is one of the authenticating marks of a Christian you will know them by their what? Fruit. Their fruit. That's why I say to you every time we take an offering, thank you so much for being generous. The truth is, I don't know if you're generous. To me, you look generous, and I'm really grateful because you take care of everything that we do here at this church, and I'm grateful for this. One of my friends, Craig Blomberg, wrote this book on the parables this is what he has to say on this one parable. I thought I'd read it to you. The countless professing Christians today who give little or nothing to help the desperately poor and sick of our world while spending huge amounts of money on recreation, entertainment, shopping, sports, eating out, cars, and homes with far more than they can ever need or use form frightening parallels with this parable. He doesn't stop there. The number of supposedly Bible-believing churches that spend equally profane percentages of their annual budgets on facilities, staff, salaries, building projects, programs, merely to service those already saved while giving pathetically small amounts. The giving outside the church today in the United States is less than 1% now. No wonder the church is in trouble. It's the Lord's decision to bless or curse a church. That's his decision. People say to me all the time, yeah, but this is America. The church is not going to, this is Jesus' church. He's not going to let it go by the wayside. Really? Tell that to Europe, where the average attendance now is less than 1%. The home of the Reformation, the Great Reformation. He'll let that church die that fast. That's what the Jews said back when the temple was destroyed in 586. He'll never let this temple be destroyed. He said, not only am I going to destroy it, but I'm going to curse you so that all the other nations will say, what on earth did you do to your God? That's powerful. He goes on. While giving pathetically small amounts to the physically or spiritually needy abroad or at home, maybe even more scandalous. That's what this is talking about, this parable. I've told you before when I I resigned from Denver Seminary, I'd gone high enough. I didn't want to be a vice president. I didn't get my education to do all that. I wanted to get back in the trenches with people. And I began to look at organizations and churches that, where I could find that role. And uh, every group that invited me to interview, first thing I did was look at their financial statements. That's the test of a true heart. Let me see your bank. Let me see your uh, checking account. And let me see your calendar. It's a dead giveaway where your priorities are. You can say all you want, but that's a dead giveaway. So when I looked at this church here, they were giving over 20% compared to the general fund. All the other churches were below one. I wasn't about to join that church, those churches. This is a church that captured my heart because of people like you that are sacrificial. I can't say that enough. Thank you. Thank you for being generous. We can make a difference in this county. And yes, it does involve finances. Ask yourself questions about your own finances. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. i trying to give you ways to think about it. How much money do you give to organizations that help the disenfranchised and the poor? What's the, what's the amount? What's the amount that you give? What's the percentage of income and wealth? What is it? How much time do you dedicate to helping Again, not trying to make you feel guilty. If you feel guilty, enjoy that feeling. That's the spirit having a conversation with you. Okay, I'm not trying to do it. I'm trying to give you the questions that help you reflect on what it means to be committed. When Jesus said the road to destruction is very wide and the road to salvation is very narrow and few there are that find it, I don't think that's a joke. So we should always be examining our own spirit. Always always. Father, thank you for your, uh, just for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to wander in the darkness, but giving us insight, giving us pathways to redemption, giving us open doors. Father, thank you for giving us wealth. Thank you for giving us the means to Be blessed. And I know you do it to bless us. But Lord, help us not to be stingy with that. Help us to give it away. You promised that our vats would never run empty. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to learn as a church, as Christians, to be sacrificial, knowing full well that you will bless us abundantly because of that, so we can help others so we can give more to others. Lord, I pray for the, my brothers and sisters in Haiti right now. Lord, they finished their church service in a very, very hot building, and they're feeling a little demoralized right now. I pray, Father, that your spirit would encourage them. That's one of his jobs. His roles is to be an encourager. So I pray that he would encourage them, and that you would let them see the impact in their own culture of being a Christian see more and more people turn to you. Father, I pray that for our church as well, that you would help us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.